This is part four of a multiple part series on the Gulag. Please consider following, subscribing, and rating the podcast wherever you listen. And uh, also, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. So, last episode, we discussed generally what was li- life was like in the camps. First, from the arrests to you know obtaining a job to receiving a three-year-old package. For today's episode, I'm going to do as I promised and continue on this trajectory by touching on the guards, the type of prisoners you would find. Remember, this was a very diverse place. This wasn't like the Nazi concentration camps where you would really just sort of see just really Jews. The Gulag was more of the melting pot. We are also going to touch on the tactics of survival that you could use if you were inside the camp and that if you wanted to use to get through your sentence. And then finally, we will discuss the methods of escape that you could use. This episode contains some things listeners may find disturbing, so quick disclaimer there. So to begin, you know, we're, we're all human, right? There are opportunities where we can fall to either extreme of the human condition. So when I think about what a guard was like in the gulag system, I often look at it through sort of, a, I guess, a black and white lens. Uh, my mind often wanders to the Stanford prison experiment, where the guards who were just ordinary college students became drunk with authority and started abusing other prisoners who were just like them, ordinary college students. And yeah, yeah, I know that the study wasn't super, super scientific, right? But I, I think it does show what institutions and conditions can do to a person. Sort of shows that all of us who consider ourselves good are still prone to committing evil. And while, you know, it may never happen to us, right? Or maybe... Some of us requires a certain degree of that push. We can still, you know, fall into that trap. So when I discuss the guards, remember that this could be any one of us, as we'll see that there were definitely different kinds of guards. So remember, it could be any one of us, depending on our if we were born or thrown to, you know, completely different circumstances. So, you know, the environment does play a role 100%, right? But it's not sort of all of it. There are always a lot of different factors. This is obviously not a, a 100%, right? This is not an excuse. But I just want to say that with the proper amount of a pessimistic view of, of humans mixed with the right circumstances, we all can commit, you know, some degree of, of wrong, maybe. Some more than others. I think it's within all of us, right? So without further ado, here are the guards. Uh, so to start, right, there were multiple ways that you could become uh, a guard within the gulag system. One way was what they called graduating into that role. This was done by ordinary prisoners who worked hard, you know, showed good behavior, and got close with camp administrators and, and other sorts of guards. You know, so if, if you decided that your purpose in the camp uh, maybe as you know, like Victor Frankl would say, was to become a guard, then you know, you could probably set out to achieve that status. Right? Remember when we, in a previous episode, we talked about Frankl, 
Uh, he was the guy who rationalized the camps. Right, work harder, get more food, guy. He was the one who he was one who originally started out as a prisoner, and he worked his way up this ladder until basically he was planning entire projects. So he's sort of the ironic, you know, pull yourself up from your bootstraps kind of thing. Applebaum says that about more than half of the camp administrators, nearly half of the armed guards, were uh, previous prisoners. So you know, there was always there's always that sort of hope there. Um, there are also other ways to end up as a guard. Usually, you were kind of thrown into the Soviet system and had very limited options. The gulag for these poorer people was probably the best of a crappy situation over time due to, uh, you know, little or small amounts of volunteers. They had kind of to provide some incentives. So you think maybe, you know, one was money or other sorts of benefits. The farther east you went towards sort of Siberia towards the more snowy, mountainous, poor condition regions, you know, the better benefits you probably would receive. One guy signed up for it, but he pretty much regretted it almost immediately. He was like, no, this money is not worth it. It's the nothing you can do to keep me here. So he complains, and he's like, get me out of here. They're like, okay, we got you. And they basically... Re, uh, they give him they they give him an option to be reassigned to another camp, but the camp's basically you know a, a couple hundred miles to the south in the exact same conditions, All right? So no real difference. Uh, but if money wasn't sort of uh, your incentive, then you could also achieve, achieve hope to achieve better uh, social status by becoming a guard. Applebaum writes. Quote, Susanna Pechora, a prisoner in the early 1950s, recalled meeting one female warder who was working in the camp because it was the only way to escape from the dire poverty of the collective farm where she had been born. She fed her seven brothers and sisters on her camp salary. Another memoirist tells the story of Maria, Maria Ivanova, a young woman who came voluntarily to work in the camp in 1948, hoping to establish life on a collective farm and hoping even more to find a husband. Maria instead became the mistress of a series of officials of ever-declining rank. She wound up living with her two illegitimate children and her mother in a single room. End quote. Uh, for some of these people uh, who became guards, they didn't really have a, a choice at all. This occurred quite sadly to a lot of the thousands of Red Army soldiers after they had just defeated Hitler. Upon arrival back into the Soviet Union... They would be held up, and most of them would be sent to work as guards in some of the camps. The administration would go as far as to take away some of their documents so they couldn't escape or leave. Applebaum says that between 300 and 400 of them committed suicide a year in an effort to get some sort of escape. One Red Army soldier turned gulag guard said, that I've been in the service for a very long time now, and I still have not been given a resident permit. And nearly every day a policeman comes around with an order to vacate my apartment. And this leads to quarrels in my family every single day. Those who did not commit suicide, I guess sort of just lost hope almost. One prisoner comments on uh, the guards, who we can assume here are, are someone maybe from the Red Army, where they say, quote, there were definite signs of demoralization. For one, you could see in their willingness to be bribed by the female prisoners or to become clients of the prettier ones. 
were to allow criminals to leave the brigade in order to break into some apartment and share the loot with them later. They weren't afraid of the severe punishment that they would be subject to if their superiors found out about their misdeeds. End quote. You know, there were just... These were just some of the ways someone could find themselves positioned, you know, in a guard tower holding a rifle, watching prisoners mine for gold. And keep in mind, these were just some of the conditions uh, within the ranks of the thousands of guards. There were those who were you know, sympathetic to the prisoners. There were those who, we already know, committed some pretty terrible atrocities. So it is not right to say that the system made them this way or is it or that the, it made them evil it's just it's more complex than that in a way they could choose to work the prisoners to death or they could choose to be lenient and all all accounts from prisoners say that really it just varied widely because you know just like the prisoners these guards came from a diverse set of places one former prisoner told Applebaum that quote her guards were not only very different sorts of people, but also people who changed over time. The conscript soldiers, in particular, acted like beasts when they were new on the job, as they had been pumped full of propaganda. But after a time, they began to understand, not all of them, but a large part, and they often changed, end quote. But at uh, this time, it, you know, you had choices if you were a guard, uh, but some camp administrators would punish this sort of leniency. One guard was actively investigated because he allowed a prisoner to see his brother, which at the time was not allowed, right? He was also investigated maybe for being a little too, too friendly. But remember, this is not always the case. It varied widely. Sometimes people would just, you know, wouldn't care. But all in all, cruelty was frowned upon, but cruelty still persisted. And too much niceness really was frowned upon. But even then, you know, you still saw it. Kind of makes you wonder why would the camp administrators and guards treat these prisoners so terribly in the first place? I think there were many different justifications used. Most of which, you know, you can still see in any history textbook and still see today. One way was with the use of dehumanization by calling these prisoners enemies or subhuman, it makes it easier to justify committing these acts. Right? You saw that with the Nazis and the Jews. Applebaum also says that state slavery was sort of part of the uh, accepted ideology, you know, as in there was a constantly a reminder of the, the importance of hard work, uh, the, the increase of camp output. You know, the, the, this, the very existence of the Soviet Union, you know, it relies on this. And as I said, this was very ideologically driven. I think Alexander Solzhenitsyn really understood this in his, in his works. All was done, you know, for the good of communism. And if some people have to suffer, well, you know, it's you know, ends justifies the means type of deal. And, you know, if they did suffer, you know, well, that was worthy. You know, you know, shut up, prisoner. You know, mine more gold. Your sacrifice, you know, it's something, it's for something greater, right? There's something beautiful in that. Uh, it's what they would say. But as I said earlier in a previous episodes, the economic output, right? That could have easily been a, a justification. One conversation between a camp commander and a camp doctor goes like this. 
Uh, what are they getting? The camp commander says. The camp doctor says. They are all receiving antipelegra rations established by the Gulag Health and Sanitation Department. Well, how many of them will go out of work in the first and when? Oh, well, none of them will ever go out of work in the first again, of course. But now they'll survive, and it will be possible to use them for light work within the compound. Stop giving them any antipelegra rations. Write this down. These rations are to be given to those working in the f camp first. The other prisoners are to get the disability rations. Comrade Colonel, obviously I didn't explain myself clearly. These people will only survive if they are given a special ration. A disabled prisoner receives 400 grams of bread. On that ration, they'll be dead in 10 days. We cannot do that. The camp commander looked at the upset doctor, right? Uh, there was even a sign of interest in his face. He goes, what's the matter? Do your medical ethics prevent you from doing this? And the camp doctor is like, of course they do. Well, he's, the camp commander says, well, he doesn't give a damn about, you know, I don't give a damn about your ethics. Now let's move on, right? Who cares about that? We, and later, all 246 of these prisoners would, would die within the month. Now, while the guards may seem cruel in their own sort of way, there were also, there's also cruelty within a certain type of prisoner, the, the criminals, the criminal prisoners. And these consisted of anyone from murderers to thieves and everywhere around and in between. These were the kinds of people who prided themselves on their sentences, meaning that the longer your sentence was, the more respect you received from these other criminals within the camp system. So you would often see criminals not caring really or, or some of them even going out of their way to get you know an extra five or ten years tacked on you know well, you look at me uh, Ginsburg writes about her dealings with some of the uh, female criminal prisoners quote they were the cream of the criminal world murderers sadists adept in every kind of sexual perversion without wasting any time they set about terrorizing and bullying the ladies Delighted to find that the enemies of the people were creatures even more despised and outcast than themselves. They seized our bits of bread, pushed us out of the places we had managed to find. End quote. Uh, you could find the criminals all throughout the gulag. One prisoner said that they seemed to be closer to monkeys than to men. Another wrote about how they had just sex openly and walked around the barracks completely naked. But with all that said, there was still a certain amount of structure within their their groups or their connections, whatever. A criminal would find himself in a in a sort of group with its own customs and ways of doing things. And these groups within them they had their own hierarchies. Carol Colonna, a Polish prisoner, wrote about the criminals in his camp, quote, the Russian criminal was extremely class conscious in those days. In fact, class to them was everything. In their hierarchy, big time criminals, such as bank or train robbers, were members of the upper class. Grisha Tijorni, the head of the camp mafia, was one of them. At the opposite end of the social scale were the petty crooks, like pickpockets. The boys would use them as their valets and messengers as they received very little consideration. All others, all other crimes, were formed the bulk of the middle class, but even there, there were distinctions. 
In many ways, the strange society was, in caricature, a replica of the normal world. In it, one could find the equivalent of every shade of human virtue or failing. For example, you could readily, readily recognize the ambitious man on his way up, the snob, the social climber, the cheat, as well as the honest and generous man. End quote. Yeah, so based on that, you can imagine how much a mafia boss or a bank, bank robber would, would hate the petty criminal and vice versa. But if you were lucky uh, and getting close with a, a criminal high up in the ladder, right, if that was you, that you could receive all sorts of benefits and protections. Even just the fact that you're sitting close to one means something. For example, you could get a better sleeping arrangement or maybe time off. That is, if uh, the criminals actually, you know, did any sort of work, they were, which they were firm, famous for, for doing, that is, they b barely did any work. I think another a fascinating aspect to me uh, of the criminals was their attitudes toward political prisoners, right, who they saw as lesser than them, even. And they absolutely dominated these political prisoners in every way, you know, as you can imagine, and this can be seen with, uh, as mentioned, the amount of camp work the criminals would do, which was basically nothing. They would just throw it on to political prisoners. One young guy, uh, one pri he was a young prisoner, criminal prisoner, who was sent there for stealing grain. He was yelled at by another criminal because he was doing work. And instead, he was told, you know, go find a political prisoner to do this for you. And to, you know, the camp administrators... This was fine because, I mean, as long as the work was being done, you know, who cares, right? We need, those figures are being met. I don't care what's going on in there. Another, uh, another equally horrifying and interesting aspect of the criminals, criminal world was their card-playing rules, of all things. Uh, all sorts of things were bet on during card games. Money, bread, clothes, a foot or a finger, and sometimes other political prisoners' stuff. Gustav Erling writes about one such event on his way to camp. He calls the criminals gorillas. He says, quote, The gorilla suddenly threw down his cards, jumped down from the bench, and came to Shlovsky. Give me the coat, he yelled. I've lost at cards. Shlovsky opened his eyes and, without moving from his seat, shrugged his shoulders. Give it to me, the gorilla roared, enraged. Give it to me, or poke out your eyes. The colonel slowly got up and handed over his coat. Only later in the camp I understood the meaning of this fantastic scene. The stake, to stake the possessions of other prisoners in their games of cards is one of the criminal's most popular distractions. And his chief attraction lies in the fact that the loser is obliged to force from the victim the item previously agreed upon. End quote. Sometimes card games would become even more extreme. You know, no, not not death, although maybe. But there was something else, something uh, very uh, surprising to me, very different. Applebaum writes, quote, Colonna witnessed a bitter, prolonged card game between two high-ranking thieves, which ended only when one of them had lost all of his possessions. Instead of an arm or a leg, the winner demanded a terrible humiliation as penalty. He commanded the barrack artist to tattoo an enormous penis on the man's face, pointing to his mouth. 
Minutes later, the loser pressed a hot poker against his face, obliterating his tattoo and scarring himself for life. End quote. So if you're smart, right, you try to stay away from any sort of card game within the, the gulag criminal system. So, you know, it, it sort of lives up because you got to really live up to those custom and rules that, and that they have. Now, switching gears here, uh, I'm going to give you some perspective on some ways to survive the gulag. Many survivors have differing views on the sort of mindset or camp philosophy they took. Some say it was really the Darwinian strongest survive. Others say it was really sort of assisting and helping the weaker. But, you know, we can be sure that there were some strategy that, strategies that could be of use to you. One, one of those strategy, strategies was pretending to work, right? We've off, I think we maybe all of us have often seen this. The strategy seems right, pretty familiar, but I'll try to, to describe it within the gulag system. Uh, the prisoners called it tufta, which translates something to like swindling the boss. Some prisoners would fake sick so that they could go to the doctors where they were taken care of. But the doctors, right, they would always sort of notice that most of these people who were showing up weren't really, I guess, sort of sick in an emergency sort of way. So they could only accept a, a select few. So if he if he accepted you, he was either doing you like a kindness or you really sort of needed it. Um, this kind of laziness became uh, so bad, right? Call it laziness, right? That if you were caught for it, you could be charged. But, you know, it sort of makes sense for me, at least in some way, because usually if you were... If you worked harder, the energy expended wouldn't really make up for the extra amount of food you were given. Although some prisoners do beg to differ. But if you did, you know, the least amount of work for the mo the most amount of food, your chances of survival goes up. And you know, people found this out pretty quickly. Uh, this didn't just mean physical labor, of course. Some prisoners got smart trying to fulfill these impossible norms. One Polish woman who was working in a factory, in a fish factory, would just toss maybe a few pieces of fish in a jar and close it when the overseer wasn't looking and, you know, throw the rest out. So, yeah, she was meeting the norms. But, uh, you know, it was sort of, a, you know, the tough duh of it. Another prisoner, Thomas Govio, who was in charge of tree felling, writes, quote, During the first part of January, my partner... Levin and I did not fell a single tree. Neither did any of the others in the lumber, in lumber, lumber brigade. There were many log piles in the first, and we selected one or two, cleaned off the snow, and sat down by the fire. There was even no need to clean off the snow, because not once during the first month did the brigadier, the foreman, or overseer come to check our work or our output. End quote. Uh, so, you know, Kind of lucky in a way, if you could call it that. You know, there are there are many other ways of of swindling the boss. Uh, that could really just include anything, you know, from bribing, you know, from really anywhere. You know, right? So there were lots of ways to survive in a way, but uh, pretending to work was often really the most widely used. I think. Uh, but there were some 
that were very unlucky due to a variety of factors. It would end up dead. One way of, of dying was starving to death. You know, considering the amount of food you were given, uh, you know, it's not hard to accept that starvation was a very big factor. Even if the, the food that you were given wasn't very nutritious, right? Like I said, pellagra was huge, which uh, is caused by a lack of vitamin B3. As well, there are other diseases and deficiencies. But if you were starving, all sorts of things could happen. Some things like stomach problems, dizziness, swelling. Thomas Segovia again, who was someone who almost died of starvation, woke up one day to find his legs purple, and one of them was double the size of the other. He said that blotches, there were blotches all over him, and that these blotches would turn into these huge boils, and this blood and this pus would just trickle down his leg. Uh, he said that when he pressed a finger onto the flesh, this indention would just remain. And when he was told that, you know, time for work, he couldn't even fit into his clothes. And he was told that, you know, just cut a little, cut a little uh, slash in the boots. That should do it. That should help your ginormously swelled, swelled foot fit in your boot. Now, if you did reach this state of starvation, you would just become this sort of shell of yourself, almost like a ghost or, you know, a ghoul in some way. Petkovich said that, quote, there behind the barbed wire was a row of creatures, distantly reminiscent of human beings. There were ten of them, skeletons of various sizes, covered with brown parchment-like skin, all stripped to the waist, with shaved heads and pendulous withered breasts. Their only clothing was some pathetic dirty underpants, and their shin bones projected from the, a concave a circle of emptiness. Women, hunger, heat, and hard toil had transferred them into a dried specimen that still, unaccountably, clung to the last vestige, vestiges of life. End quote. Well, you know, it's hard to imagine, but for me, but food was just constantly on their minds. It was just so, oh, so, so overwhelming. You know, it's, it's hard to do anything when all you can think about is food. Sometimes people would just drop dead. Right, and, and then people would swarm around them like vultures, you know, claim, claiming each thing on their body. You know, oh, I get this hat, I get this jacket. Obviously, suicide was another way out. Some would use it as a means of protest against the regime, maybe by leaving a note describing why they did it. Others just would in some sort of escape or, or some sort of relief. Now, if you were unfortunate to die within the camp... Camp administration usually uh, didn't throw a huge funeral for you, not really at all, because they just had too many deaths on their hands, and usually many were kept a secret because camps with high death outputs weren't favorably looked upon, and this resulted in these mass burial sites. Edward Buca recounts a time, right, when he had to stay out late, he was watching some of the camp administrators and guards put these uh, what they, he was watching what they did with the bodies. He says, quote, After they had been stacked like timber in the open-sided shed until enough had been accumulated for a mass burial in the camp cemetery, they were loaded, naked on sledge, heads on the outside, feet inside. Each body bore a wooden tag tied to the big toe of the right foot, bearing its name and number. Before each sled left the camp gate, the, an NKVD officer took a pickaxe and smashed each in 
its head. This was to ensure that no one got out alive. When outside the camp, the bodies were dumped into a transea, one of several broad ditches dug during the summer for this purpose. End quote. You know, there's a, a lot of I think, terror in that, right, of, of all this really, but one, because, you know, it was very you know easy to die, especially if you got in that state, you really couldn't do anything else. You sort of just withered away. And if you did die, you know, who would know? There are lots of stories of loved ones trying, you know, journeying all across Russia, trying to find out what happened to their their husbands or their children or whoever. And most of the time, they couldn't find anybody. They couldn't find any signs. Chances were they were just in a mass grave somewhere. Now, finally, if you did have a... If you did survive enough and you held on to that idea of escape, escape, you know, you had a few options if you wanted to, you know, attempt to escape. And the first one to me, really, it interested me in sort of this morbid way. So I apologize, but it was the strategy that involved taking along someone plump to act as the meat what they called a walking supply. So you and someone else would escape together, but because the environment was so you know treacherous and long, you would need something to hold you over. The obvious solution was to bring another prisoner along with you. And you know, when the time got right, kill him and eat him. One set of prisoners that did this underestimated their journey so they got to a point where they had eaten their little walking supply and were like oh god okay what now so they turned to each other and you know after a little bit of you know mutual suspicion one of them fell asleep and the other one slit his throat later he was found with pieces of flesh in his pocket but of course this was, right, this is sort of rare. Uh, but there were also other creative ways to escape. One prisoner built false walls in a train and hid himself inside. Others nailed themselves into boxes and had themselves shipped out of the camp. You know, I used to work at FedEx, so it's kind of, you know, it's horrible, right? But I also find it sort of hilarious because I'm thinking about, you know, this huge package, right? I'm like, oh, God, I got to pull this thing up. So I get out the hand truck you know, inside, um, someone's moaning. I'm like, what the hell? Anyways, but, you know, but th these were, you know, the more psychological or spy type extremes of escape. Other ways, you know, included sneaking out after dark or during sort of the work day when, when guards weren't really paying attention. Uh, you know, it was always possible, although the chances of you actually making it to someplace safe were very, very low for a variety of reasons. One, like I said, there was the environment, which could easily kill you, especially, you know, if you, if you were in one of those camps super far away from anything. There was also these boundary hunters that would chase you down, and even certain villages wouldn't help you out because, you know, they could be punished, or maybe because there would be some sort of reward on your, on your head. And even if you were caught camp administrators... They would they would need to set a precedent. So sometimes they you would be hung from the gatepost as a sign, you know, 
or you would just be shot immediately on your way back. So these were just a few options you had. Most of the time prisoners knew that they couldn't really escape, but there was always, right, there was always that hope. You know, I think that really kind of kept them going and, and gave them a reason to survive. So looking back, we talked about the guards, the criminal prisoners, ways of survival, and finally a few methods of escape. For this whole human experience part of the gulag, um, I'll kind of conclude it there. Um, Obviously, I missed a lot, uh, but people tell me sort of the 30 to 45 minute time range works better for them. And I'm looking at about maybe 30-ish, 35 minutes here. Uh, So next week, I'll go ahead and um, release one final part of the series dealing with sort of the the conclusion, kind of the ends of the camp, and a little bit of history, just to sort of wrap it up. I apologize, this one was a little late for anybody who who listens, got kind of busy this week. Thank you for listening, guys. Please follow the podcast, subscribe, and rate it wherever you listen. Follow the, the Twitter at ideas underscore influence. The link should be in the description. I'll also have a link to the website there as well. Thank you to Patrick for the support and to all the people who have given me feedback. I really, 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 really appreciate it. And again, thank you for your time. I hope you learned a lot. I really did. Stay tuned for the next episode and have a good rest of your day or night. Cheers.